Welcome to episode number nine of Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you find a career you love, start a business, and generally crush it at life. I'm Justin Gordon, your host and an MBA student in the class of 2020 at the USC Marshall School of Business. I've had my hand in entrepreneurship and business since 2012 when I launched Just Go Fitness and now 2018 Just Go Grind. In this episode, we have Andrew Ferrero, who is also an MBA in the USC Marshall School of Business with yours truly. We talk about search funds in this episode, something that I had no idea about beforehand and probably many of you do not know about. Talk about that in depth. We also talk about Andrew's passion for playing poker and its relevancy to investing and go deep dive into investing because he has a tremendous amount of experience in that area. Talk about how internships are so powerful and why they are so powerful. Andrew has done a fair amount of those throughout his career. We also talk about how Andrew honed his investment style, the day-to-day of an investment analyst and different roles he has been in. For fun, we talk about Tesla and Amazon, just because, why not? Ultimately, we talk about what makes a great career. The show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. Patreon.com slash justgogrind is where you can support the show for as little as a dollar per month. And on iTunes, you can leave a rating and review. Excited for this episode for you guys to listen to it. Hope you enjoy. Let's bring in Andrew. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you on, man. I know you just got done today with your search fund internship, like this morning at a call, right? Yes, that's right. So how did you even get that internship and why did you pursue it in the first place? Just want to start there. Yeah, I guess... um, What's a search fund? People probably don't realize. Yeah, sure. So like a search fund... um, I guess the easiest way to describe it is like private equity on a much smaller scale where uh, there's an individual, typically they've gone to business school and they have a desire to raise some capital, uh, go out and acquire a business. And then after acquiring the business, they actually run the business's operations as the CEO, uh, most typically. Um, In terms of what drew me to the opportunity um, you know, I've always had a passion for investing. Um, you know, when I've, through my past experiences, I've had a lot of investment management roles and I decided, um, you know, I didn't want to just be an investor. Um, company operations, company strategy also interested me. Um, and I think, uh, you know, raising your own search fund kind of marries those two, um, you know, ideas together into one. Um, in turn and how I actually ended up coming about uh, with this internship, a friend of mine goes to UCLA Anderson. Ooh. Yeah, um, <laughs> rival. Uh, USC rival. Um, and he is going to be starting his second year. And he came across a job posting, knew that I was interested, and let me know that this guy was looking for an intern. Um, I reached out to him via email. We had a call. Um, call went very well and he offered me a position and I decided to move out to LA a little bit earlier probably than expected Um, and been working in Manhattan Beach for like two and a half months now yeah so how did you decide like you gonna do an internship even before starting the NBA because a lot of people are like okay the NBA is starting (laughs) let's just chill out for a bit we'll just get ready you know go on a trip or something why the jump start for you already yeah um you know, I think it's just a really unique opportunity that happened to be in the area of where I'm going to be going to school. 
Um, I was certainly interested um, in the job itself and the search fund model. And I don't know if this type of opportunity would have presented itself again in the future. Um, so I figured I'd, you know, capitalize on the opportunity and uh, start a little bit earlier. Um, <laughs> it's, I'm going to start school in about like three days or something like that. So um, some time off would have been nice, but uh, I think all in all, I made the right decision to, yeah, to do what I did. It seems like the right career decision, especially if you can find that, because it seems like a very obscure there's not that many search funds probably i don't know how much you looked like did you find a lot of different ones or um i actually wasn't really like too actively pursuing yeah. it just because it was like oh i'm you know gonna be getting my mba and right. you know having some time off would be nice um you know the model started back in the 1980s by a guy named irv grosbeck um who was uh, i believe from stanford business school and it's grown quite a bit so there are a lot of searchers out there today uh, much more today than there were even I would assume like five or ten years ago, um, you know. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there's plenty of smaller companies that are out there willing to be sold and and bought. Um, so I think that the supply of investment opportunities are, um, you know, there's still plenty of them out there. So um, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I guess there's there's some out there, but. I to the average person, they may not, like I said, they, we may not even know what a search fund was. So I remember talking to you at first. You're like, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm in a search fund. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it's like <laughs> probably like a 10% hit rate. Um, so I think I have to do a better job when I'm like, yeah, I work for a search fund. And people are like, what the hell are you talking and you about? And you start getting into it. You're like, wait, I, I do not I have yeah. a clue what you're speaking of right now. Yeah. Um, so the search fund, because you can have more of an operations and that strategy type of thing, not just purely the private equity, purely yep. that side of things. Um, so that takes me back. So let's go to college days at Notre Dame. I know you got a finance undergrad, yep. uh, master's of accounting uh, mm -hmm. after that. But going into college even, were you looking at finance even when you, before you started Notre Dame? Were you thinking, oh, I just want to go into finance? Or you mentioned you always wanted, you were kind of always interested in finance type of thing? Or? Yeah. Um, more specifically, investing. Investing, okay. Um, and I had an idea, like, where, you know, it just sort of interested me even before Notre Dame. Um, I think what really piqued my interest at first was, you know, when you're investing, you're managing risk and you're taking risk, um, you know, in an attempt to generate a return. And I'm not the most risk-averse person. Um, I do like to take risk, and that's kind of what... Um, I guess steered me towards investing and then you know once you get to school you you know you learn that it's you know it's an analytical sort of job and it's intellectually stimulating um, it's competitive in the sense that you know as an investor people say you know it's very difficult to outperform outperform the the broader markets so that sort of challenge um, you know I thought was pretty cool and you know, I think just analyzing and researching different companies and in different industries um, to me is is fun. You know, I mean, take an iPhone or a laptop or something and really understanding um, the model and the strategy of what drives those companies to make that um, has just always uh, been an interest of mine. And that's kind of how the finance and investing side of things um, came about for me. Were you doing anything with that? even in high school or like growing up, was there anything with investing? Cause like, obviously you get finance in college and your undergrad, but you're yeah. already interested in investing. Were you like 
trying things out in high school even or um, just like curious about it yeah yeah no so it, it was more curiosity um, and the the risk taking aspect of it actually I've uh, one of my passions is to play poker and I've been playing poker since I've been uh, well below the legal age um, <laughs> so probably around like 14 or 15 and it was um, you know the risk management associated with poker and uh, the quantitative aspect of it, um, you know, that interested me there. And I felt like a lot of just the principles learning playing poker kind of helps you be a good investor, um, you know, not being too emotional with your decisions, um, you know, quantitatively, like backing into a decision and why it makes sense, uh, managing risk and that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, nothing like with investing directly. <laughs> when I was but, in high school. Yeah. I wasn't like Warren Buffett like buying <laughs> stocks when I was eight years old and watching yeah. them go up or anything. Um, right, like, yeah, what was that called when you like choose stocks? You don't actually have them yet but you're still playing it. Just yeah, so, like, like a little play, paper portfolio paper, or yeah, something. That yeah, type of thing. Go to those investment uh, <laughs> competitions or whatever. Right. It's funny because even like I feel like I played poker even with family growing up. It's just one of those things like the adults are playing and like if I were to like hang out it was let's play some poker and it's always interesting from a numbers perspective yeah. type of thing. I could see where that could lead to interest in investing i went a real different route but i can see how sure, that for sure. you would would make sense to go into that exactly um how did you choose notre dame uh so my brother who's four years older than i am uh he went to notre dame and when i was in high school i'd go out to visit him you know multiple times a year and um just absolutely loved every time i was visiting i thought the campus was beautiful um, he's got a great group of friends who are now some of my closest friends as well. Um, so it was just a really great environment, uh, to be in, um, you know, academically, I think it was a, yeah, I think it's a strong school. I think the business program at Notre Dame is, you know, one of the top ones in the country for undergrads. Um, so it kind of just matched up with everything that I was looking for. Yeah. Um, I mean, I say that now, but at the same time too, like my thinking about all this stuff when I'm like a 16 or 17 year old kid, maybe some of it, it was probably more like the campus visits and going to football games and loving that. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, so those are probably the, the main reasons. Were you even looking other spots or other places or just mainly like, oh, Notre Dame and if not, well, what, I don't know what I'm going to do or what? Yeah, I probably <laughs> went about the whole college application process a little bit differently than everybody else. I didn't cast as wide of a net as I should have um, and actually had the same sort of issue, um, you know, applying for MBAs as well. Um, I applied to uh, like Loyola, Villanova, um, Boston College, and I think it was just those four schools, um, which I think is might be on the lower side of. Man, if you know, you know, there. right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> for sure. Like I'm comfortable. Um, I'm gonna go to Notre Dame. That's but great. I mean, it, it's I wouldn't have changed, you know, where I went to school. Uh, even today, uh, some of my best friends are still all from there. Um, you know, is a incredible experience, um, and I owe Notre Dame a lot uh, for you know giving me the opportunities that. You know, I've had throughout my life. Sure. And how did you decide then going from the undergrad, you got the finance degree right away into the accounting degree in ma your master's program? It, what was that decision like or how did you even decide that in the first place? Yeah, it, it wasn't much of a decision um, because I was interning for an investment bank between my junior and senior year uh, while at Notre Dame. 
and it happened to coincide with uh, the financial crisis, which was <laughs> like literally like the worst timing to be working or interning at a bank. Um, and then on top of that, I was interning on a desk that was uh, the structure, structured equity solutions desk. Okay. And uh, what caused the collapse in the financial crisis were structured products. Um, <laughs> so I was really picking, uh, picking the right industry and the right desk to be on for my internship. Um, not really. <laughs> um, oh, and uh, so actually I was on hold with, uh, with the bank for, oh man, it was about like two or three months. Typically they extended offers uh, to full-time employees in August and I was on hold until October. Uh, the bank, I was in Las Vegas on a fall break trip. The bank announced that they were cutting 10,000 uh, people within their workforce. And the day after that, I got a call from HR saying, we will not be able to extend you an offer. Um, wow. So yeah, that was, I kind of had a feeling that it was going down that way. Um, you know, and I didn't want to just take a job for the sake of taking a job. Um, so I kind of reassessed my options. Um, and I figured having an accounting background or at least a, a master's in accounting, uh, would be useful, uh, throughout my career. And Notre Dame's got a great uh, accounting program. Their master's program for accounting, um, you know, I think is one of the top ones in, in the country. Um, ten, it's probably like about like ten to twelve of my like really good buddies were also in the same program. <laughs> so you know, doesn't hurt considering those factors. Is like, well, I'll go and get my master's, and uh, that's why I got my master's in accounting. Did, did anyone tell you to do an internship? Did they mention doing an internship? You said like, between your junior and senior year, you did an internship in an investment bank. Was that just suggested to everyone at Notre Dame that like, you should do an internship in summer? Was it like suggested earlier? Did you do one between your sophomore and junior year? Because I don't think I actually did. I was in fitness, so it was a whole different realm, obviously. But was that like yeah, suggested? Yeah. So um, I graduated from Notre Dame in 2009, and I think the recruiting – is way different today for undergrads than it was when I was there. Um, when I was there, it was uh, pretty much pounded into our head to get an internship between junior uh, and senior year. Okay. Um, nowadays, I think it's between freshman and sophomore year, um, which I don't think is the greatest thing because um, I think it restricts people from just like trying things that you know, they might want to do on their own. And, you know, when you're young, you should be experiencing different things. And I guess with an internship, you get experience, but, um, they think of it more as like a, a job and not exploring really. Um, but I did have an internship from sophomore to junior year, uh, where I worked for a long, short equity hedge fund. Um, that was my first real internship experience or like real life uh, sort of work. Um, I probably was a terrible intern if I <laughs> remember correctly because, you know, everything was just so new to me, but uh, I kind of opened my eyes to the investment community and um, I was working under a portfolio manager who was, you know, a really smart guy. So I learned a lot from him. Um, and then the summer before that, between my freshman and sophomore year, 
I think I like cat eater or something like that. Um, classic, classic yeah, way classic to spend a summer. summer job, <laughs> yeah. you know, caddy six days a week, play free golf on Monday. So. <laughs> now, and even in the investment bank. So from that first, you know, you had that internship between sophomore and junior year, and then you knew you wanted to go in investment banking for the next internship. What was that experience like? Did you, I mean, did you actually get a lot of experience with that? Do, were you under someone in the, it, at the, the junior senior year between those ones? Um, and the investment bank? So it was, yeah, so there were mentors that were provided to us and, um, you know, I found full-time employees that I really connected with that kind of took me under their wing and um, would take time to teach me the ins and outs of, uh, you know, whatever it is that the desk did, um, you know, so I was really thankful for that. Um, did I learn that much that year? Yeah. Um, but I think that I've grown a ton since then as well. Like what I know today versus what I know back then, you know, I think it's night and day. Um, but it was definitely a great stepping stone for sure. Yeah. To help you out. And I'm guessing you would then suggest people do an internship or do internships in college that type of thing. Yeah, yeah, for you sure. Have to. Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, it just kind of opens your eyes to you know what you might like to do or uh, what you don't like to do. Yeah, um, which I think is important. Yeah, by all means. And then, so you got that master's in accounting, and then you already had some investment experience. What were you thinking after the account? Did you already have a job lined up like while you were getting your master's, or did you just kind of like you had that and then you knew you wanted to get into some type of investing afterwards, or? Uh, so when I started, um, my super senior year for, uh, (laughs) for, uh, my masters, um, I didn't have a job at that time, but I knew that I wanted to pursue something in in investment management, uh, which is like different than I think literally every other person who was getting their (laughs) masters in accounting who ended up at like one of the big four firms or, you know, some sort of accounting firm. Um, but I went through the recruiting process in the fall and, um, I interviewed with a firm down in Charlotte, North Carolina, global endowment management. Um, I think it was like sometime in October or November and, um, global endowment management it spun out of Duke university's endowment. So Duke university's chief investment officer started up his own private investment fund. Oh, wow. And uh, the idea was to manage the endow or manage global endowment, uh, similarly to how we manage Duke University's endowment. So we would invest in um, all asset classes, so public equity, private equity. We invested in hedge funds, uh, real estate funds, fixed income funds, um, you know, special opportunities funds. Which would example of that would be like uh, we invested in a fund that buys aircrafts, tears them down, and then sells each piece of the aircraft, um, you know, at a rate of return that's higher than what they bought the whole aircraft for. Um, So that sort of stuff. Um, And the reason that I chose that role was it gave me exposure to all these different investment strategies. Um, And, you know, as a 21, 22-year-old, you know, I was still familiar with myself with all these uh, myself with all these different uh, styles that were out there. Yeah. Um, you know, and it gave me and just having conversations with all these different money managers out there, these different hedge funds, private equity funds. Um, 
was a great learning experience because, you know, you're speaking to world-class investors and kind of learning how they think, um, being able to pick their mind, uh, pick their brain a little bit um, to help you learn. Um, And then at the same time, I was able to formulate kind of what sort of investment style, um, you know, and philosophy uh, that made most sense to me. Um, so yeah, that was that was at Global Endowment. And you were so you're an investment analyst for for that organization, and this was for about two years, it looks like. Yeah. Um, what was the day to day like, and especially in the beginning? And I'll go through like beginning and end kind of thing. If you if you remember even like what was the day to day like? They're just like training you at first to get started with, and then you mentioned kind of formulating your own investment strategy over time. How did that mm-hmm. happen next then? Yeah, so I think I was unique, um, a unique candidate when I joined. Um, while I was at Notre Dame, I actually entered at uh, University of Notre Dame's investment office. Um, so it ran a very similar sort of strategy to what we did at Global Endowment. Um, so when I started, I think I probably got up to speed a little bit more quickly um, than others. And that's just was purely a function of, you know, experience, not have anything to do with, you know, ability or, or whatnot. Um, on a day-to-day basis. So we were, Global Endowment doesn't typically make direct investments into companies, let's say. We're investing in the actual like hedge fund or the private equity fund. Um, so on a day-to-day basis, there would be anywhere from, you know, like three to five different calls with either um, current uh, money managers that are in the portfolio or prospective money managers um, evaluating their investment philosophies, their investment approach. Um, you know, there is a good amount of quantitative analysis when you're going through um, past returns of these different managers. Um, you know, when you're th- when you're formulating a, you're putting together a, a global portfolio. Um, you know, a an investment fund might have great returns, but at the same time, it might not fit into what that portfolio needs at a particular time. Um, you know, you don't want to have too much exposure to one particular strategy or too much exposure to one asset class. Um, so you had to think of it, um, I guess, at a, a bit of a higher level at times. Um, so, yeah, and then also there was a lot of we had some internal portfolios as well that I worked on. Um, one was a public equity internal portfolio that was um, what we called uh, Gem Select Equities, I believe was the exact name for it. <laughs> and um, there were different criteria and financial metrics that uh, would be required for these companies to get into uh, the portfolio. So it was pretty formulaic. Um, but I did a decent amount of work with one of the principals on that. Um, and there was also a lot of travel involved. So, you know, in the U S most of the money managers were located in New York. So I had a lot of trips to New York. I made a trip to Chicago, I believe at one point, um, you know, but we ran a global portfolio as well. So, um, you know, I had, the the opportunity to travel to where did I go? I went to Switzerland. Um, I went to Moscow to research a Russian manager that we actually ended up investing in. Um, so yeah, you're really meeting 
some very interesting people, uh, but not just domestically, but internationally. And um, yeah. And when you're going there, like always in my head, think when you're flying to another country, like can you just like talk on the phone and say hello? But why are you going there, like in person? to check out these companies or these, or these like managers? Yeah, you know, like, I mean, when I was at uh, Global Endowment, we call it GEM, so I might Gem. call it GEM Go for it. going forward. Um, you know, we were managing about two and a half billion dollars. Um, so we're, when we're writing checks to these money managers, we're writing, at, when I was there, it was like 25 to 50 million dollar checks. <laughs> so. It's not one of those things where you just kind of want to talk on the phone with these people. You want sure. to see them face to face. I think face to face meetings you just get a, a lot more out of. Um, you know, you get a feel for the type of person they are, the character of them, um, which is a very important uh, point. Uh, you know, to think about when investing uh, with these people, it's not all just about being the smartest guy in the room. You want to invest in high character people who are going to be managing uh you know your money um you know with you know you at the you on their mind at all times and being a good steward of your capital um so i think that's that would probably be the the main reason of you yeah. going over and meeting with them to actually really really and like to make sure that they actually have an office and stuff like you know <laughs> like point. for if if you're a, an investor in global endowment and you know, it turns out that one of the funds was a fraud and they're like, well, what was your due diligence? Did you ever go to the manager's the office? office? You know, if you said no, you're probably going to get fired pretty quickly and lose <laughs> all of your assets. That, um, that kind of reminds me of uh, War Dogs. Have you seen the movie? I don't yeah, know, yeah, yeah. With Jonah Hill. <laughs> yeah. Miles Teller. Yeah. And they're like, yeah. they're working in this little office. They get this massive government contract for, for all the ammunition and everything. Yeah. Like, they would have just like looked into it and be like, who are these guys? There's no way they would have even yeah, accepted yeah. that. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. That, so that, that makes a lot of sense. So you spend two years, two years at this place, yep. and then you decide to move on to a different company, which was Kinney Asset Management, mm -hmm. and you're an equity research analyst. Why the switch, and then how did that kind of go about? Yeah, so like after that two-year period, um, you know, I talked about coming up with, you know, what sort of style and approach uh, to invest in made most sense to me, and it was, um, you know, deep value, long-term style of investing, um, Kinney Asset Management was a partner of Global Endowment, so Global Endowment was invested with Kinney Asset Management, um, and that's how that connection came about. Um, I was actually, so I left Global Endowment, um, you know, and I took like a month off, and I wanted to be in Chicago because, you know, there's a Notre Dame connection there. A lot of my college friends were there, so I was living in Chicago. They set up a lunch just for me to go talk to Peter Kinney of Kinney Asset Management. Um, you know, and I thought it was more of like a networking sort of uh, meet and greet. Sure. And we sat down and, um, you know, we talked about investing and just things in general for about an hour. And like we really hit it off and it was pretty apparent that, you know, the way, you know, that I think uh, is the best way to approach investing was very similar to the way that he does. Um, and at the end, <laughs> the end of the lunch, he was like, well, you know, I'm looking for an analyst. Uh, would you be interested? And my eyes lit up. I was like, oh, absolutely. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, it's that kind of meeting. Uh, okay. Yes, please. <laughs> so, oh, um, 
Yeah, so I joined him uh, as an equity research analyst, and that's how I ended up there. So after that meeting, did you, like how soon after were you? Did you have like another interview process and all that sort of thing, or like, or how did that even work then? Um, it was just like, yeah, come on. No, he like he's a super high character guy. Um, I kind of knew that going in um, because Global Endowment had a relationship with him. Um, He's a fantastic investor, and I think you could see that from the returns he's generated over a very long period of time, um, you know, outperforming um, the markets. Um, and it was just kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, you're like, this has to happen. Yeah, it was like, this is an opportunity that, you know, is would be silly to pass up. So did he basically offer the position at that meeting or was it like it wasn't yeah it wasn't very it wasn't that direct okay he did mention like oh i'm looking for an analyst he's like yeah i would want you to just come and you know meet the cfo um you know at the time he was managing about 500 million dollars there was one other analyst and a cfo so it was really just the three of them um met with the guys went well um and that was the team. And actually, the fir- it was my first or second day. The second analyst or the other analyst who had already been there uh, decided to leave the job. So <laughs> um, I was going into a role where I had never been in before, working for a, now a three-person firm um, as an analyst for this portfolio manager. So there was quite a bit of responsibility I guess right from the get-go yeah and how did that so how many people were working at the other one your first job out of college I mean, what were the differences between those two this seems like a small smaller operation well they handle yeah. less capital they have a smaller team I'm guessing yeah I mean it was just different? it was just, just the them. three of us um, well in the first firm I was at it was the first global endowment was still relatively young when I joined them I think they started in 2008 but at that point you know he had a really great reputation while he was at duke so he was successful raising money um when i was there there was probably about like 20 people on the investment team um differences you know clearly obviously when you have a more robust team there's probably going to be more team oriented sort of projects to be working on um you know global endowment did a great job of setting up you know, fantastic analyst program that was a little bit more structured. And at Kinney Asset Management, you know, it was just, it was pretty entrepreneurial where it was, you know, he wasn't gonna babysit me. Um, you know, he was gonna guide me and, you know, teach me obviously along the way. Um, but it was more of like, hey, here's this company, go read about this company and tell me what you think. Uh, and, you know, tell me what you think it's worth. Um, so uh, that, that, that was quite different, uh, you know, and, um, but at the same time, getting that sort of direct experience right off the bat, um, you know, I couldn't ask for anything more. Yeah. And in those, so those two different positions, you spent like five years in total and you said you were basically underneath some pretty smart guys or smart investors. What is it about them that makes them good investors or what, you know, and from your perspective, what made them good, what made like how did they keep learning or get better? I'm just curious. Yeah, well, I think um, how you keep learning is to, you know, constantly be reading, um, you know, and just learning about new things on a daily basis. 
Um, what made them great investors or what, I mean, still today, they're still investing. Um, I think that they have a clear idea of their investment philosophies and um, the approach that they take and they stay very disciplined to that approach and they don't, um, you know, steer away from it too much. Um, it's repeatable or for, for Kinney Asset Management, it's a repeatable sort of strategy. Um, you know, I think patience is something that's uh, very important. And I think, um, I guess lastly, the one other major point to touch on is to have the ability to take a contrarian sort of view and go against the herd um, when making an investment decision. Um, you know, when people hate a stock, uh, everybody knows that people hate the stock. You know, the sell side, meaning the investment banks, let's say there's 12 guys covering it, 11 people say that it's a sell, it's at its 52 week low. Um, those were the type of companies that we would look at. Um, and the reason behind that is, uh, in our opinion, a lot of times those investments were de-risked in the sense that all the bad news was already out there. Um, people understood uh, the issues that the company was having and that was already priced into the stock. So it couldn't, we, what we would hope, it couldn't get much worse. You know, there were a couple of instances where it did and you know, there's probably a mistake on my part. Um, you know, but I'd rather be buying a company like that that's a quality company that has a decent balance sheet that might just be going through some operational hiccups. Um, you know, that's de-risk because there's probably a significant amount of upside potential there with limited downside potential, which was a huge thing when I was at Kinney Asset Management. I mean, how, many, how much time goes into each investment? I'm sure it's different, but you're investing in different companies, obviously. And they, was Kinney Asset Management, were they actually individual stocks then? Yeah, yeah. Right. We were investing. It was a global equity portfolio, uh, constant, very concentrated. We owned across the entire world anywhere from like 12 to 15 stocks in the portfolio, which is okay. probably more concentrated than a typical mutual and fund that you would see. see. Yeah. And how much time, energy, whatever goes into each decision? It's just like, we're all, you're always paying attention every day, obviously different, different mm -hmm. things, but is it like a system running and they just know, oh, these ones are ready. We can check on these and let's see, like, how does it even work? Yeah. Um, it depends. So what's cool about investing is that, um, it's all cumulative. So if I was getting up to speed on an industry, um, because I was looking at a company that I had never looked at and that was in an industry that I had no idea about, um, that clearly would take uh, quite a bit of time. Um, I think like a few weeks, you know, we'd speak to the CEO, the CFO of different companies within that industry. Um, if we couldn't get them on the phone, then we would get investor relations on the phone. Um, so in that case, it would be a little bit longer, but if I had done a ton of work on a particular industry, um, where we knew all the players in the industry, um, and you know, the stock price was at a level that we thought that we considered to be cheap, we'd probably be able to pull the trigger a little bit more quickly because we've developed that knowledge. Um, you know, and it was also helpful that, you know, my bosses been successfully or old boss has, has been successfully investing you know at this point in his life probably like 25 30 years wow. so he 
he's come across so many different companies and um, we were very focused on investing in high quality companies that, you know, have a sustainable advantage that will be around for a long time. Like you would never see us invest in like a company like Netflix or something like that. It doesn't fit your portfolio, what you're looking for at least. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, so what are, what are the, generally speaking, like the top, you know, three to five or things you're looking for in a company. So if you even look at, you know, doing your homework on a company, for instance, you said you mentioned talking about the industry itself. So you're looking at the competitors. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other things you're actually looking for? Yeah. Um, Feel free to go into the weeds. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The the first one of the most important things, um, you know, does the company have a healthy balance sheet? Um, so as I said, we were very focused on limiting our downside risk. Um, and when I say a company has a good balance sheet, meaning they don't have too much debt on their books because if you get into a situation, let's say a recession and you have your sales are going down and you have too much debt and you're paying all this interest expense, um, you know, not having a great balance sheet kind of restricts you. Um, so that was a very important criteria. Um, a lot of times we invested in like these boring companies that you know, might have just some sort of, one thing that we look for is like some sort of like competitive edge of why they were able to generate higher margins than the next company. Um, you know, is that sustainable? What's preventing other companies from copying them? Um, you know, and that, that sort of uh, characteristic within a company. Um, and then, you know, I guess third would be the valuation. So Peter was and still is very strict on not overpaying for um, for a company when he's investing, um, because if you're overpaying, that probably means your downside risk is a little bit higher. So you know, I guess to give you an example, in today's markets, where you know the stock market's been up every year for I don't even know how long, like <laughs> eight years, nine years, or whatever. You know, when you look at where valuations are today. Um, they're quite high relative to history, um, you know, and everything kind of goes in cycles. So today he's probably a lot less active. The portfolio, if I were to guess, is probably like 40 to 50% in cash, which is very unique. Um, you know, and the other 40 to 50 or 50 to 60% is invested in, in the stock market. Um, and simply because he doesn't think that owning some of these companies at the valuations that they're at. Uh, makes sense and he'd rather kind of save some dry powder for the next time that we go into a recession which whenever that is so that he could buy these great assets at cheap prices because everybody's freaking out and scared that the world's gonna end right Um, the world hasn't ended yet Um, so (laughs) I assume that uh, there will be cycles again Um, you know and that's how he's been able to capitalize um, you know, on his investment opportunities throughout his career. Yeah, and with that, are they, is it like they, they just know in their heads kind of what they're looking for? Or do they have, a, I'm sure they have something like written down as like a spreadsheet of numbers they're calculating stuff and putting things through their, their model? Or like, how is that organized? Yeah, so, speaking? so like as an analyst, one of my tasks would be to model out all these different companies. So modeling out historical income statements, balance sheets, cash flow statements, um, you know, and projecting that into the future. Uh, these are public markets. So we have past price data. 
So what we would do is go back and, you know, see how cheap of a valuation, um, I guess as an example, on like a price to earnings basis, let's say, um, you know, how cheap of a valuation it's traded at historically. So let's say there's this company that's traded at seven or eight times, you know, at some point throughout its history and today it's trading at 14 or 15 times like we're not going to go and buy that company because going back to limiting your downside you know what happens if something bad happens and it goes back to trading at eight times we'd rather be buying it at eight times and we know that it's kind of its valuation is troughed out somewhere around seven or eight times you're never going to be right in time in the market anybody who thinks that they could i think is full of it um and uh that's kind of how we approached um the investment strategy what about for you during those those five years how did you kind of form your own strategy did you just kind of know in your head of like okay there's different things i've learned these last five years and like if i invested that's what i would do did you like start writing stuff down of like ah here's my here's my own model i would use to put stuff through or is it the same like like you personally do you have anything like with that yeah like i i don't think that i'd like necessarily be writing anything down um i'm i like to think through problems pretty logically and just kind of what makes sense and you know it just seemed like this sort of strategy was a repeatable sort of strategy um you know and i would try and pick things out that i didn't really like about the strategy and you know i it was tougher to punch holes into this deep value long-term investing strategy today there's a lot of people that are saying like value investing is dead blah 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 and valuations are so high but at some point, things do do turn. Value investing is what Warren Buffett is that the same type yep. of thing he was using value investing, and he's talked about a few different books. I think the like Intelligent Investor or some other books, maybe. Yeah, Benjamin Graham, Benjamin Graham, Intelligent yep. Investor, um, is it was written by yeah Benjamin Graham, who I believe was Buffett's Columbia Business School professor. I think it was a professor. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's what it was. Um, and it was the same idea of just if there's an asset that's worth a dollar and you could go into the market and buy it for 30 cents, then just like, yeah, of course I'm going to go buy that. Um, it was, I, I, I hope I'm not mixing these up, but Graham was okay with investing in what they would call like cigar butts. So like maybe crappy companies, you know, that are trading at just incredibly cheap valuations. Um, you know, it's still at a discount to what he thought the asset value was. Um, but if it was not a quality company, he was still okay. And I think Buffett's mindset sort of changed when he met his partner, who uh, still his partner at Berkshire Hathaway, Charlie Munger, who, um, you know, married the idea of, you know, value investing and buying assets on the cheap. Um, but at the same time, you know, focusing on investing in high quality companies that have a sustainable advantage um, over the long term. Um, and I think the, the reason behind that makes a lot of sense is because, you know, a crappy company is, you know, it's probably not doing well. There might be some industry headwinds, you know, that are 
giving it issues or there's technology change and there's a chance that those types of companies are just not going to be around uh, for a long time. So, I mean, thinking of something like a camera company, like a Kodak yeah. uh, as an example, I mean, I'm sure there were times you could say that you were buying this asset on the cheap and now I can't remember the last time I've seen like, you know, I mean, I guess I could remember the last time I've seen a camera, but they're just a lot less frequent today because we have a computer in our pocket now. Yeah, that's exactly right. A computer with a camera a computer with, with, with a does camera everything. With like a bunch of other stuff yeah. that I probably don't that, even know about. Right, so that those companies, yeah, do become obsolete. Um, purely from a curiosity standpoint, so mm -hmm. um, I was just in the jumpstart at USC Marshall. Uh, you were interning at, at that time, so you didn't go to these classes, but we talked a lot about three different companies was Amazon, Netflix, and Tesla kind of tearing apart questions that people had in the class about the company itself, looking at their 10K and going through it that way. Um, I'm just curious, Tesla seems to be the one that everyone's like so mixed about for all these things. Yeah. I don't know how much you've looked into it, but I'm just curious on what your perspective is on the, the stock and the company in general. You might know way more, but maybe not. I don't know. No, I don't know that much. I would definitely definitely not an expert on the company um i am more in the camp that the stock is just way overvalued um if you look at their financials and the amount of cash that um the company uses on a quarterly basis i think in terms of free cash flow they're you know negative in the billions and billions of dollars yet you know, the stock is, you know, above the market cap of like a GM, Ford, and some of these other car companies combined. Um, and that doesn't make too much sense to me because at the end of the day, there's only a certain size that, you know, for uh, of the car market, people can only buy so many cars. So how are people valuing this company to be multiples the size of a GM that's like a massive car company that probably manufactures a fraction of the cars that like a of that GM does or Ford does. Um, now there's a lot of there's also like a solar side of the story true, that true. I admittedly know nothing about. So everything yeah. I said, you know, could maybe just be proven wrong. Um, but I mean, that's my non-expert yeah, opinion without, without knowing much. Um, maybe that changes. Um, you know, I don't know. I think Elon Musk is an incredibly talented, smart entrepreneur um i do think that he has he has this combative style with investors that he's right and they're wrong and um you know if i'm investing in a company i don't want the ceo you know having a you know pound your chest moment with everybody else out there i'd rather him just be completely focused on you know growing the business or focusing on the business which i'm sure he is but <laughs> right, right. just seeing that stuff in the paper and whatnot um that kind of turns me off um so that's my opinion on <laughs> tesla yeah you know um, i'm just curious about that because that's one like very hated debate amongst anyone who is interested in that type yeah. of thing even like our 
professor talking about it. He's like, I just don't understand it. Yeah, um, it, it really honestly makes like, no sense to me. Um, like the Amazon, uh, in contrast to that, is, you know, on an earnings basis, it's like, in, you know, I don't know what it is. It's like probably 150 times earnings or something crazy like that. Yeah. Um, but they do have this competitive advantage of just being bigger than everybody else. And they're really able to put pressure on, um, you know, the vendors that deal with them. Um, and they've really created this moat that makes it very difficult for uh, classic brick and mortar retailers to compete with them because they don't have all these stores that they need to fill up with all this inventory. And there's just like a lot of costs that are associated with brick and mortar retailers that is not associated with Amazon. Uh, I think Bezos is one of the best CEOs, um, you know, that's led a public company ever. Um, and the reason I like him so much is that he focuses, he truly focuses on the long-term sustainability of the business. So people freak out that like Amazon's not making money right now, but a lot of the reason behind that is because he's investing uh, to make Amazon stronger for the future. Um, so that's the retail side of Amazon's business. Um, there's another piece of Amazon's business that um, I think the average person doesn't know much about um, or pays much attention to, which is the Amazon Web Services. And you know, when you compare it to the retail side of the business that makes very low margins, the web services business makes incredibly large margins. Um, and as they, it, it's one of those businesses that as they continue to grow, it's just very scalable. And as, as they scale, it makes it tougher and tougher for competitors to come in and compete with them. Um, you know, they compete with Google and Google Cloud, Amazon, uh, not Amazon, uh, Microsoft with, I believe Microsoft has this uh, Azure, A-Z-U-R-E. Um, you know, but Amazon's the leader there, um, makes tons of margin, you know, and that's, that's an area of growth, you know, as web-based services become more and more prevalent. Um, you know, that over time, it's just going to generate a lot of free cash flow, which is, you know, how you really should look about uh, valuing a stock. Yeah, for those who don't know AWS, Amazon Web Services, um, basically a lot of different websites are built on Amazon Web Services. Like they host they mm -hmm. host them. So if you look at, I think like I think Dropbox, I don't know if there still are, but um, there's a bunch of different ones. So like, for instance, when I worked at Clark Toys, we used a diff few different companies as, a, as an online retailer. And when we heard that AWS went down for a bit, then you notice that like, all of our stuff doesn't work. Yeah, it's because they're yeah. all built on AWS. Exactly. So that's another part of the business world they, they own. Like you said, most people don't even know that, but like they have to you know, talk about server farms, other stuff. Like companies have to build on something. It's just like yeah, and like another AWS. thing too is is they do within AWS they do um, storage. Um, you know where as data become just continues to explode. Um, you know that data needs to be stored somewhere. So. Yeah. The tailwinds for that sort of business, you know, I, are just going to continue just to be, the growth is going to be astronomical, I think, for, you know, the near term and probably the medium term, um, just because as consumers, as businesses continue to consume data, that business is just going to continue to grow. Yeah. And 
to that point, so you have stocks yourself like individually as an individual investor now or no? Do you no, I um, like I have a 401k where I index it. Um, okay. And just the reason behind that is I think in, unless you're really paying attention to things on a day-to-day basis, it is very difficult to um, outperform the market. And, you know, I, I don't want to be bothered with <laughs> – you know, looking at these stocks, you know, on, a, in, on an individual basis over and over again, where, like, let's be honest, that um, without being committed to it, I'm probably not going to outperform the market. So I'd rather just put it into an index and not really care about it and not bother to look at it. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, how much they... I've seen people who have stocks and they do have to look at it every day, but I also know that a lot of them don't actually know what they're looking for, it seems like. Yeah. Like... Oh, this is a company I I use their product. Oh, I want to uh, go buy says it. buy it. Yeah, so I'm going to buy it. But yeah. there's way more to it than that. So yeah, it's kind of exactly. you're just like throwing money down the drain almost. Like you just you don't really know. I mean, you could get lucky. You right? could get lucky, like, and I mean, just like sure. totally crush it. But um, it's just so it goes back to like risk management. Is I like to take risk, but um, I like taking calculated risks. Yeah, and I don't think that that is. The calculated risk that, I would like that's to That's a good point. So you are a risk taker and you don't have stocks. Like, right. like it's just one of those well, without, I do. without the time. Without I do, the index, but through, but, yeah. Yeah, through an index, which is different. I have index as well through Wealthfront, right. but that's a whole other thing. But um, which yeah. And if he has ind- no individual stocks right. like, and you are risky and you also do know about this and you're not. So that should like go to people, that should like let people know that like you may want to think twice about individual stuff regular investment things but yeah but people do it for fun which i totally encourage um right it's just personally it's not the best decision so okay while i have you on this this type of investment topic (laughs) before we move on i gotta ask you this one more um what about the whole cryptocurrency type of thing do you know anything about that are you like um i do not okay so Um, not really I don't no, know much I have, either, I to have be honest. One of my good friends who lives here in LA is huge into it, into Bitcoin and all these alt currencies. Yeah. And he's mining this <laughs> coin called Ravencoin that he set up these cryptocurrency miners in the middle of nowhere, Utah, where electricity usage mm-hmm. is cheaper and all this stuff but i mean <laughs> that is the extent of it and so i clearly don't know anything yeah, no, that's fair it's it's i haven't looked into it enough i know like one of my buddies like bought some like yeah it was everyone's gonna get it like and it's like i'm like no i'm not like i don't know enough about it yet to right really do that i actually i owned bitcoin um so i used to play for this poker fund that uh where i would play online poker and they would uh, there was a 50-50 split, and at the end of the month, they would pay me uh, my payment in Bitcoin. Oh, wow. So I was getting <laughs> I was getting these payments in Bitcoin <laughs> when Bitcoin was like 400, 500 bucks. Oh, I didn't wow. know anything about it. Holy crap. Um, and I remember there was like a two or three month period <laughs> where my money like doubled. And I was like, holy cow, like, I don't know any other asset where like I can make this amount of money like that yeah, quickly. I'm definitely going to sell this. I don't know anything about Bitcoin. Yeah. And then like three or four, uh, it was probably more than that. It was probably like six months later. Like I'm seeing the Bitcoins at like 15,000 just like, yes. Oh my God. I, 
could have had more money in my well, bank account. Well, than that's I do. the same. Uh, so, like the from the social network, the Winklevi twins, yeah. um, they yeah. are Bitcoin millionaires because they bought a bunch early on and then obviously jumped up. I don't know if it's, someone mentioned recently it's at like six or seven thousand or something. I don't know. It's, I think it's, it's like it, popped to like seventy five hundred. I follow it because of my buddy and like you're curious, right? Yeah, I'm like, oh, like, yeah, but it's funny. Like, and then they also made a. Uh, did you watch? Do you watch Silicon Valley? Have you ever seen that? That show? Uh, I watched the first two seasons. Okay. Part of the third. They they talk about <laughs> they talk about Bitcoin in there, and they have like an alarm anytime it changes prices, and just going off constantly because oh, it goes man, up and down because it goes up and down so much. Oh okay. <laughs> I think Guilfoyle has that. Yeah, for as you watch, they have watched that. It's so funny. I mean, because how much it changes and it's like constantly going off. Yeah. Um, anyway, getting back to this a little bit, <laughs> I had to ask the like, why you're here. I was like, why not? Yeah. Um, you pivoted though from that into a role with a sales account manager at a yep. candy company. Mm-hmm. When I saw that, I was like, what happened there? Yeah, I think and a lot of people look at that and they're like, you know, what the hell was he thinking? Like I'm um, like a man, HR guy now. I'm like really curious. I'm like, what happened? Yeah, it was it. Um, so I loved being at Kinney Asset Management. Um, you know, being an investor and um, it was very intellectually stimulating, but I'm also a very curious person um, and like to try out different things. And, you know, as part of my role at Kinney Asset Management, you know, we would talk to CEOs and CFOs of these large publicly traded companies and talking about their strategy and how they think about, you know, implementing their business plans and, and operating and I just felt like I wanted to get experience of what it would be like on the inside of an actual operating company. Um, so I sat down with Peter in January. I kind of let him know that, you know, I was looking for something else to go work for an operating company. I didn't know what it was, what it would be at the time. I was thinking maybe, you know, in a strategy or corporate finance sort of role. Um, and then this sales opportunity, I was speaking to like um, recruiting firms, let them know kind of my thought process and why I wanted to move to an operating company and this sales role came about, um, you know, and I really just wanted to be at an operating company. So I took the role to be on the inside and see the chaos of what it's like to be in a business on a daily basis and what was that like then uh it was pretty crazy it was pretty <laughs> eye-opening um you know as a research analyst i'd just like come in sit at my desk read put together a model like talk to you know these companies and um it was just a lot more active um you know in a an account manager role and being in you know within a large company um, I saw a lot of things, um, you know, that I thought that the company did very well to streamline their operations, um, you know, that I may not have thought of or even, you know, contemplated before as a research analyst. I also saw a lot of things that I didn't like of what the company was doing, um, you know, for the long-term sustainability of, of the business. Um, you know, and I was kind of taking what I, what I learned of what makes a good company and how a company should be run and trying to apply it, uh, to the company that I was at, um, yeah. in the sales role. And so in that sales role, 
I'm already too familiar with what they actually do or how that works in a day-to-day basis, and mm-hmm. which I'm always drawing down to that because a lot of times with companies, I think people don't understand what the actual role entails because you, you read a job description and maybe you talk to one or two employees and you're like, okay, then you get there and it's maybe completely different. Yeah. So as an account manager in that type of position, what are you doing? How are you managing your time at that company? Are there assignments you know, brought down to you or how's that work? Yeah, so I worked um, in what they called the special markets division. So um, I was in a team of, there were three of us um, and we, our clients or our customers um, were e-commerce companies. So Amazon was actually a, a customer that I covered um, you know, the military has all these different bases throughout the U.S. Um, and on these bases, they have convenience stores that, you know, sell candy and all this stuff. Um, so that was another customer. Then, um, you know, any customer that didn't fit into the other channels, so like a Kmart would be an example, um, a Hobby Lobby you know, all of these stores sell candy and yeah. you'd be shocked of how much candy they actually sell. Like when I tell people, you know, that I was a sales <laughs> account manager in candy, I think that they picture that I'm going to like an individual convenience store. Like, hey, oh, guys, hey. <laughs> who wants some candy? Here's Andrew. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it, it wasn't like that. It was like, no, you're going to uh, usually the company's headquarters and you're meeting with a purchaser um, just trying to push your product into uh, these different channels. Um, so like some like my customers would be in like the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, like a Hobby Lobby was a massive customer. Um, yeah. and you just would never think that they would be. Yeah, but they, like they were. Yeah. I guess you measure how many stores they actually have and yeah, do the numbers on that. You're yeah, like, I get how they can. Do- yeah, and in America as well, we're pretty, uh, we like our candy. We yeah. a lot of it, I guess. You know, yeah. We think about how much exactly. Probably like a little bit account. too much. Yeah, we're obese for a reason. <laughs> yeah. In general. Um, Generally speaking, of course. But I don't even really eat candy, so I thought that was kind of funny that, yeah, that I was you're working for a candy company. Candy. Damn. Did you get free candy, though? I did. Yes. Uh, it's, like the, <laughs> yeah, it's like the first week. They give everybody who joins this big suitcase, and I had no idea what's in the suitcase. So I was living with uh, three good buddies from Notre Dame at the time, and I get home and open up this suitcase. It was like a cardboard suitcase. Sure. And what's in it is just probably like 30 days worth of candy. Um, My best friend is, he does like his candy. Um, So I just gave him all of that. Uh, But yeah, there's a lot of free candy. Happy birthday, buddy. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Wait, so okay. In that position, what were some of, do you remember some of the name, the the brands they they have? So the overall, like, I guess holding company, what it's called, Ferrara. Ferrara Candy. Yeah, they're actually like a massive company i think they generate about a billion in revenue and that's just in the u.s they're like the they're one of the largest candy manufacturers in in the country okay um in terms of brands uh trolley so you know those sour gummy worms sure that was the number one product really company uh thing that like fly off shelves um you've never been a sour a lot of Oh, I love sour, like (laughs) sour anything. Like I wasn't a big sour candy guy, but like anything sour, I generally liked. Um, Were you a Warheads guy then back in the day? Yeah, when Um, I was younger, I loved Warheads. Um, 
So there's Trolley, Lemonhead, um, Brock's, which is a big uh, holiday um, candy. Um, what were some of the other larger brands? Uh, Black Forest. And when I was there, it was actually pretty cool. The company invested a lot of money into um, an organic operation where they manufactured organic candy. And uh, Black Forest was the brand that was uh, designated to be the company's organic candy brand. Um, It was early stages when I was there, so I don't know if it's been successful. I was the one who raised my hand at the sales meeting. He was just like, well... People generally eat organic. I think that it's like a healthier sort of demographic and people who eat candy, they're like regularly or probably less concerned if it's organic or not. Agree. Um, so I'd actually really be curious to see if it ended up taking off or if it didn't. Um, but if it was to be like other food product categories, then it has probably done very very well for them yeah what would, the seasonality of that type of business with candy is it pretty crazy once you get to like halloween or that type of thing or? yeah no that's a great question um it is very there's parts of it that are very seasonal okay. so the way that ferrara broke it down like they actually had like a team that just dealt with holidays so clearly you know big enough yeah halloween and candy uh halloween and christmas uh were gonna be the you know the two busiest times of the year um so i dealt more with their branded side of the business and i think that was a lot less um i guess seasonal than the holiday side of things but you could probably you if i remember correctly like you would see the branded side of the business, you know, come off maybe in like months of November because all these stores are ordering their holiday stuff that's filling up the shelves. So there's just less space maybe for the branded. But, yeah. Um, yeah. There's only so much candy I that mean, people you, can buy. <laughs> right. Like, or I would hope. Well, yeah, that's a good point. I've seen <laughs> maybe, some of my friends go, maybe go not. ham on yeah. some candy. So I don't know. There may not be a limit, I guess. Yeah. Um, especially around that time of the year. People are like, oh, it's just the holidays. Like, mm-hmm. I can do whatever I want. Like, yeah. No big deal. <laughs> um, in that role then, though, didn't you have – so after – so eventually you came and like, okay, we were only there like maybe a year. I was there for a year yeah. and like a month. I actually knew – after three or four months that it wasn't for me. Um, Partly because, you know, I think there's a lot of skills that are involved with, you know, being a good salesperson, Mm -hmm. Um, but it wasn't intellectually stimulating for me. You know, I was flying around all over the country, just going to the next customer and having a sales call. And it was like, you talk about the same thing over and over again. It just became very monotonous, uh, you know, and I didn't, I didn't have any sort of like fire or desire to sell candy the rest of my life. Yeah, it wasn't quite your thing. Yeah. So knowing, I mean, knowing after three or four months then, but you stayed there like a year, were you looking at other spots? Were you just like, well, I have to stay here because of resume? Or like, what were you thinking? Yeah, you know what? That's a mistake that I made. Um, I did stay there because of resume. And there's been another instance, um, you know, that happened later on in my career that was a similar reason. Um, you know, but I didn't want to make it seem that I was just jumping from company to company. And even though there was a thought process and there was an explanation behind it, 
you know, sometimes when somebody looks at your resume, you know, they, you can't speak to them, obviously. Um, so that's kind of why I was hanging around. I also had a lease uh, that was in Chicago, so I needed to pay the bills. <laughs> um, and I think it was like in December, like I knew that I didn't want to do it. And I think it was December of 2015 where I just like knew that I was getting out of it. And I just started thinking about next plans around then because my lease was coming due. I think the month was April. Yeah. Um, so it was coming due pretty quick. And then what, it, so getting towards the end of that, you're looking at other options. I'm always curious on where people, how people find those. Are you just looking at the job sites? Are you looking at directly at company websites for other stuff? Are you talking to your friends? Like, look guys, I'm not going to sell candy forever. Hook a brother up. Like, what are you thinking? Yeah. Uh, none of that actually. None of that. <laughs> um, so at that time I wanted, I, something on my bucket list was always to travel cross country and do some sort of fun road trip. Um, I was 27 at the time, I believe. My lease I knew was coming due. Uh, I was single at the time and just like, there's literally nothing that's stopping me from doing this. And uh, I wasn't sure if I was gonna have the opportunity to do it again. So I said, screw it, I'm going on my road trip. (laughs) (laughs) So were you like planning the road trip then while you're like at this company or like just prepping or you just kind of? I just, I knew that it was going to be happening. Um, I wasn't prepping like back in January. (laughs) You're uh, you're you're pretty chill. I know you're pretty chill. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, uh, I actually, I knew that I was doing it and I decided like for sure that I was doing it probably like middle of February of that year. Um, and then in terms of planning, as you just said, I'm pretty laid back and pretty chill. I actually didn't really even plan it of like where I'd be going until like a week, week and a half before I ventured out West from Chicago. Um, wow. There, it was one thing that's great about Notre Dame, um, was, there, it's a you know it's a national sort of school, so the student body is made up of people coming from all over the country. Um, where I think like a USC might be a little bit more regional to the Southern Cal region, um, but it was nice that it was a national brand because as I'm driving across country, I had a place to stay in Omaha, in Denver, in Las Vegas, in LA, in San Francisco, in Seattle. And all good friends who were gracious enough to give me a couch or a bed uh, for, oh, and Cody, Wyoming, which was pretty cool. Uh, You know, anywhere from two to three nights to, you know, a week and a half. Um, So, yeah. How did you, I got to dig into that. Because here's that, I think a lot of people, especially, maybe happens a lot more, Potentially later in life, whether you know midlife crisis type of thing, what you want to do. But you know, especially a lot of young people want to travel. They want to do other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I talked to my one of my previous guests, Christina. I traveled to forty seven countries. She traveled for work so she could travel. Um, but you did a trip, which a lot of people probably wanted to, but you mm-hmm. actually did it. Yeah. And did you know how long you were going to travel for? Or was it more like let's just play this by ear and go and we'll see? Uh, it was more play by ear. Play by ear. Okay. So you know you have friends at these different locations. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, I can see if I can stay with them for a bit. Yeah. Um, 
were you just kind of experiencing the cities, just hanging out, like just yeah, figuring out what to do next, just um, kind of chilling, like. So yeah, it depended on where I was going to. Um, so like I went to Omaha, and there's really not that much to do in Omaha. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Don. <laughs> um, but I, you know, like I visited Warren Buffett's house, and it's like the least exciting thing. You get there, and you're like, oh, this is Warren Buffett's house. It looks like a normal house. Yeah. So, um, but so like that, that was a little different than when I went to a city like Denver, where. You know, I went hiking up in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, my buddy and his wife uh, brought me to a concert that was downtown, showed me around the city. Um, you know, so I got a feel for it there. So it was a little bit of a mix of those types of uh, things. So it was yeah. pretty much a little bit of everything. So then, how did it eventually end? <laughs> you, yeah. you didn't travel forever. I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, I was actually sitting down at the beach here in Los Angeles uh, with my uh, with my best friend Justin, who lives in Chicago. And sounds like a great guy already. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's a good dude, good name. Uh, and I had just been traveling for quite some time, you know, and it was I, I did it to for an experience, but I knew that like it's not something that you could do for forever. So I decided, um, you know, to just like kind of get back into the real world. It took me about like three and a half, four months to decide that because I was having a blast. Um, and my friend Justin works for a proprietary trading firm in Chicago and he was starting up his own team. So just spoke to him about it, um, about a potential opportunity. Sounded like there was something there that was probably in July sometime. Um, but knowing that, you know, there was that potential for me to go there, I continued to take another like month or two and <laughs> uh, finish up. my travels, but it was just time to, you know, get back to the what real was, world. What was the highlight for you on that trip? Um, and would you suggest were, it to other people? Yeah, I would totally suggest it, uh, to other people. Um, there was a lot that, you know, I just learned about, you know, the rest of the world that, or the rest of the U.S. that I had never seen. And, um, you know, I lived, grew up in Long Island, New York, went to school at Notre Dame, which, you know, is its own bubble in itself, um, lived in Chicago. So all these big cities, um, you know, but there's a whole other world out there. And, um, you know, the middle of the United States is parts of it's beautiful, but like, you know, parts of it, it's just like industries that you never ever see and you're driving through it. Um, it made me, um, you know, I was always appreciative of, you know, the family support and, you know, the, the resources that have been provided to me throughout my life. Um, but this kind of just amplified it because, you know, going through some of these towns, um, you know, they're not some of these towns are just economically not as well off and it's just kind of an eye opener of, uh, you know, how lucky I've been. Um, so it was, uh, it was humbling in a sense. So I think from a personal standpoint, like I got a lot out of that, um, you know, and then from just like a fun standpoint, like I lived in Las Vegas, that was an extended stay, um, for about, it was somewhere around a month, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, um, where I was just, 
I Airbnb'd it for half of it and stayed with a friend for another half. Um, and I was playing in World Series of Poker events, um, playing poker at casinos on a daily basis, uh, which was a lot of fun. I ended up cashing in a World Series of Poker event um, in an event called Colossus, which is the largest event that they run every year. There were 21,000 entrants uh, for the tournament that wow. I entered into. Yeah, there's like multiple days and um, all this stuff. And uh, I ended up placing, I believe it was 332nd. Jesus. So that was that was a nice little payday. <laughs> uh, so that was really, really fun. And then uh, I guess there were four national parks that I visited. Uh, I visited... Yellowstone, Arches National Park, Redwood National Park, and Glacier National Park. Those, uh, you know, each one was a blast, um, slightly different from the, from the next. And then lastly, um, you know, I stayed in L.A. for quite some time and just fell in love with Southern California. Um, I have a lot of good friends out here. Um, you know, just the lifestyle, the culture that's out here in L.A., um, I was really, really attracted to, and um, that's kind of why, one of the reasons why I ended up applying to uh, USC was just because I wanted to be out here. Yeah, and we might as well just roll into that right now. So I know you did some trading in between that actually, like coming to USC, mm -hmm. but where, so that was one of the reasons why you looked at USC, because you had been, you'd been in LA, you liked the environment and everything. I know you spent a fair amount of time swimming at the beach yeah, since you've been here. Just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit, almost yeah. like every day. It's nice having a, <laughs> my office was in Manhattan Beach uh, for this internship, so I would sometimes go to the beach before work or, you know, and shower in the ocean and go into work, or I would not want to sit in traffic and go to the beach after. So yeah, I love the beach. Yeah, and to the NBA. So did you, where else did you look? Uh, I was looking at uh, UCLA, uh, University of Chicago, um, Northwestern, and Columbia. Okay, so obviously that top top schools and everything as well. Yep. Um, do you remember like, like preparing even because once you do the MBA, once you decide to get an MBA, mm -hmm. you have to do the GMAT and everything. Yeah. Uh, what was that preparation like for you? How long did you spend? On that, did you get a tutor at all? No, I didn't get a tutor. Um, I really like hunkered down for probably like a month and a half, two months with the Manhattan prep books. Okay. Just going through problem after problem after problem. Um, so that that's kind of how I approached that, um, you know, with all the practice tests and, and whatnot. I actually had to, I took it twice. Um, you did? Yeah. So when I was scheduled to take it the first time, like I found out that the firm that I was working for was shutting down. Oh. And there was just like a lot of stuff going on and I was taking the GMAT shortly after that, uh, which is <laughs> not the ideal mindset to take it in. And no, no, no. totally like bombed it relative to what I was doing, um, you know, on the practice tests, so retook it. Then I retook it. I still did a little bit worse than what I was doing, um, but I thought that it was a good enough score and I hated that test with a passion. So do we all, like, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> You know what? It's I think it's at a decent decent uh, threshold, so I just kept the score. Yeah, I mean that's one of the things too. Everyone kind of I feel like debates because you do take. I mean, was it pretty close to your practice test though? You said you like, the second time was okay. Well, yeah, to the Manhattan prep. Yeah, it was okay. a little bit below. Okay, but, yeah, no, yeah, I get it. But it was I'm close. Just curious, if people wondering if anyone like I know I have a bunch of friends who are definitely interested in the NBA, and I've like try to 
give them a few tips and everything and talk about it. Um, but every time I interview someone who has the MBA or, or is going into it, it's fresh in your mind more than anyone else yeah. would ask you now. And it's one of those things where I think mine was, like I did a little bit better than my practice test, which was like, okay, that's solid because you're not expecting that. But right. um, for people who are doing that, it's probably around your practice test. So it does give you a decent idea if you actually do the practice test how you're supposed to. It gives yeah. you a decent idea of what your score will be. Um, but that test is brutal. And yeah. I, I'm actually a bad example of what you just said because like on the quant and the verbal, yeah. like my scores were totally switched to what I was getting on practice. So oh, like wow. I'd be doing better on quant than mm-hmm. I'd be doing on verbal and yeah. the, those two flipped and like Somehow. pretty significantly. So Somehow, some way. Just seems all like a random score bounces out. And it's a, it does seem random, doesn't yeah. it? It's almost seems like... The whole like... process is just like a big black box. Yeah, yeah man. That is, that is, it's... It's one of those things where if you want to get the MBA, MBA, you just have to do it. Yeah. You don't really think about it too much. You'll get through it. It'll be fine. Like you studied two months, month and a half, two months. I think I studied like five weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't have to retake it. It was like good enough, I thought. Same thing. I wasn't like patient enough to wait to get yeah. longer. But it's one of those things you just do. But what was the even um, the reason for getting the MBA exactly in the first place? What was that in your mind? And what were you? Yeah. You know, I for? think looking at the experience that I had had up to that point, um, you know, it was, it's a, I think fairly unique background being in investing and operations, um, you know, and I was 30, 30 years old when I was like started thinking about it. Um, and the roles that I wanted to get in, it wasn't that easy to transfer into them without an MBA. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think, the MBA has allowed me to sort of hit the reset button, um, you know, recalibrate uh, my thinking on where I want my career to go. And it's probably a little bit later than I would like, um, you to, know, but to, I, get, to, get, the to, to get the MBA. Okay. Like if I were to go back in time, I probably would have applied um, at the end of my travels across uh, the country when so it's 2006 so two years earlier yeah, years earlier, yeah. yeah. Um, you know but you can't change the past and you just kind of have to roll with the punches and that's kind of how I ended up here now yeah not bad and then so so the NBA itself you're hoping what exactly are you hoping to get out of it so we have NBA for those who don't know, it's a two-year, typically a two-year program. If you're full-time, if you're part-time, it may be a little bit longer. There are executive MBAs. There's like a one-year MBA program at different different places. But mm-hmm. knowing that you have a two-year two-year program here at USC, what is your ideal outcome after, and what are you hoping to actually gain, like you know, from the program itself? Yeah, I think. Uh, well, to start off with the question of like what, what I want to to gain. Um, you know, I think academically, I have a pretty decent background, you know, I have an accounting, finance yeah. background. Um, so it's less for, you know, that sort of stuff. But I think that the the network that you're able to, uh, to gain getting your MBA um, is just incredibly useful going forward. Um, you know, and specifically with USC, you know, when I've spoken to friends of mine who have gone, who've graduated from UCLA Anderson and uh, one who's there now, um, you know, when I was talking to them about the two different schools, one of the things that they mentioned was the network that USC has in the Southern California region. Um, you know, and I don't, I never really had a network over here. Um, you know, Notre Dame is 
national school, but I'd say that my Notre Dame network's more Chicago, New York, um, a little bit of San Francisco, but I never didn't have much in Southern Cal. Um, so I'd say that that's uh, the number one priority. And then two, as I said, you know, being able to hit the reset button and, um, you know, get an internship at, you know, something that I think uh, at this point in my life, I have a good handle of, you know, what I'd be interested in doing. Um, you know, and being able to go to a, a high quality firm, a more high quality firm than I would have without the MBA. Yeah. Um, you know, and in terms of what I'm, my plans after, um, I think long-term goals, um, it's to eventually raise my own search fund. There have been students that have come out of Harvard and Stanford and Chicago that have raised their own search fund, uh, immediately after school. Um, I don't know if that will be feasible for me because I don't have too much of an operational background and I think investors would want to see that or a strategy sort of background. Um, so uh, the route that I'm thinking about taking is getting into consulting where I could you know, work on you know, management and leadership skills, managing tasks of a team. Um, you know, being able to work on different business problems and problem solve. And I think that that sort of experience sets me up well for uh, the long-term goal of, of raising uh, a search fund. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. And just kind of looking at it, just stepping back a little bit, we've talked, you know, pretty granular about your career, kind of what you want to do. Overall, like, what's been the most valuable skills you've kind of developed over your time because you've done investing you've done i guess about a bunch of different stuff kind of um within investing but what do you think that the most like valuable skills there are kind of transferable to what you want to do or like that just have helped you in general in your career yeah um i'd say uh number one would be just my critical thinking and problem solving skills yeah um you know and this probably relates more to my investing experience. Um, you know, when I was with Peter at Kinney Asset Management, it was just kind of like, hey, here's this company, go read about it, like figure it out. What makes it a good company? Why is it cheap? Why is it a cheap stock? Um, and that sort of stuff. So it was never like a very structured sort of position. So um, I was able to, you know, kind of teach myself how to think creatively um, you know, through different problems and, um, you know, and with the help of, you know, mentors and things like that. So I think, uh, critical thinking, problem solving, uh, something else was just being able to handle myself in a professional setting. Um, you know, particularly like on, even on an international basis. So, you know, by the time, you know, I was towards the end of my time at uh, Kinney Asset Management, you know, like I could felt comfortable sitting in a conference room with the CEO of $750 million company and, you know, kind of just talking about the company and, you know, with the direction that it's headed. And, um, you know, I think getting that sort of boardroom experience, um, you know, helps a lot. Uh, when leading a team or just trying to communicate with others. Um, and the other thing, you know, I guess on, the, on an international level, um, you know, cultures are obviously different from country to country. So, you know, you kind of adjust the way that you may approach a meeting with 
um, you know, a CEO who's coming from Japan um, versus a CEO from Germany, let's say. Um, and, you know, I think that that's just a very useful tool for me to have. Yeah, so. no, that makes sense. Um, and then going to kind of the productivity habits side of things, I know you wake up early just like I do. Yeah. Has that always been what how you've operated? Yeah, unfortunately. I actually uh, wish that I was <laughs> um, able to sleep more than I do. Um, but, you know, it doesn't matter what time I go to bed, I'll still probably end up waking up at some point between 4.15 and 5.15 and a lot of times I can't fall back to sleep. Um, but it does help from a productivity standpoint, um, you know, because outside of you, you know, I'm probably the only one who's like awake and like actually like doing stuff for a few hours and you could, if you have things to do, you could really just bang that out, uh, I guess a lot more efficiently. Um, I'm very big on managing your time and, um, you know, if you're taking on a task to do it as uh, efficiently as possible um, because I try and, you know, keep a good work-life balance and I think when you're working when you're 100% focused versus 60% focused, you're going to get more done, it's going to be better work product, um, you know, and you're going to have time to enjoy yourself. Yeah, and with that early schedule, I mean, did you, like, during these, working for these other companies, you still woke up early, like, even, like, your first companies out of college? And stuff? Yeah. Did you, kind of... did you work? I'm just curious if you worked on stuff before work, or what did you do at that time then? Because most people would be like this, okay, if I'm not starting work till 8 or 9 o'clock, what do you do from 4 to 9, like, a.m., you know? Like, what, do you, what are you doing? Um, so, it'd be, like, maybe getting a workout in before work, or um, a lot of times I would just... It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go do work now, but like, you know, part of being a research analyst is just like reading. So you just wake up and, you know, I'll start reading about a company or just read the newspaper or whatever it may be. And um, so I would use my time that way. Um, you know, and even if it's something as simple as like reading the newspaper so that I have an idea of, you know, what the hell's going on in the world that day, yeah. I could get into work and just focus on work and, you know, just be efficient at work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, tuned in, man. Yeah, and you know, ever even since the moment I met you, I know you're kind of laid back, chill. Have you always been that type of way as well, or like has um, that kind of evolved over time? Or I think that that's probably evolved. Okay, over time, um, just as I've matured and gotten older, um, I would never. I don't think I was ever like a high strung. Yeah. Uh, sort of person, but, um, you know, there were things that I'd probably stress out about, uh, you know, when I was 25 or 26, where today I kind of, um, you know, just take a different approach and, um, you know, live in the moment. And I don't really get overwhelmed with, uh, you know, having too many tasks, tasks or anything like that. You know, there's times where that's going to be the case, but, if I just think to my, you know, to myself, um, all right, I'm going to do, you know, this one little thing and then start chipping away at everything that you have to do mm -hmm. instead of freaking out about all you have to do. Right. Um, just mental health wise, you're going to be a lot better off. Um, and you're just, as it goes back to the efficiency thing, you're probably just going to do your work a little bit more efficiently. Um, you know, when you, you live in the moment and just take it step by step. Right, so being able to kind of break down those problems has helped you really not have as much stress in theory as you just look at the problem practically and like, okay, I just need to 
start with this. Like, it's not going to help freaking out about it. Just let's get to work on it. Yeah, exactly. Like, what's going to change if you're, you know, going nuts about something that you have to do? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and then also, I, I'm very laid back. Um, but I'm also like sneaky competitive. Yeah. Um, I can see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and I think what I've learned uh, throughout my life is, you know, being competitive, but also knowing when to flip the switch and, you know, turn it off. Um, and I think that I've gotten pretty good at it at this point. Um, I don't mean like competitive in a cutthroat, you know, screw somebody over sort of way, but you know, there's, there's things in life that like at the end of the day that what people freak out about or what they compete about, it's just like, Hey man, just like relax, just do whatever makes you happy. <laughs> it's gonna be okay. um, yeah. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. So I just have a few more questions left. Um, sure. One of them just kind of a interesting hypothetical. I'm just curious if you weren't going the search fund route, the finance route, like what would you be doing? Was there, was there ever like another career you thought about or like, I'm just curious on what you would do. Yeah. Um, so I actually love to teach. Um, you know, when I've when there have been younger analysts or right now in this uh, search fund experience, there's a handful of undergraduate uh, interns, mostly from USC, uh, actually. And I just get a lot of enjoyment out of helping them out and teaching them just simple things about the job and then also I mean I'm only 31 but like you know like just like life experiences and things like that of you know how they should go about through the interview process or whatever it may be and I, I just get a lot of enjoyment out of that and I think that that would probably translate into uh, being a good teacher and something that I would be passionate about um, you know but at the same time you know unfortunately you know teachers the income that that they make is, um, in my opinion, is not as high as it should be because I think that they're doing a lot of great things. Um, and at some point, you know, I'm going to have a family and I want to be able to, you know, financially support my family and, you know, have my kids, uh, you know, have great opportunities and uh, be able to financially support them so they don't have college loans and like that sort of stuff. Um, so that's really important to me as well. Um, and that's, that's why I never really went down that route. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, maybe at some point, and also it's, it seems to me and I could be totally wrong, but, um, you know, at some point in the future, even if it's being like a college professor or something when I'm 55 or 60 and be able to talk about the experiences that I've had throughout my professional life and, you know, teach a, a younger generation, um, I feel like that could be more of an option. I don't think you could be a teacher and then be like, Oh, I'm going to go raise a search fund. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it doesn't yeah. work. Work, that works way. quite, quite that way. And yeah. that's one of the things too. Um, you know, someone who does like teaching or coaching, it is easy to get narrow minded into thinking what options are out there. So you may think like the conventional sense of a teacher, uh, mm -hmm. which is like, yeah, like a high school or whatever, something like that. Uh, but yeah, to your point of being a professor, it is another level up. You obviously need more experience, get your PhD typically, um, but you'll also earn more income. And it can be, if you have that ambition drive to, you know, you want to make more income, but you still like the teaching skills. Like, mm -hmm. I think, like I just recently thought of like being a professor at some point potentially. I love coaching and I love like teaching as well and like yeah. reading about different topics I'm interested in. And it's one of those things where you may not have even thought about that. You're like, oh wait, I'm going to get an MBA, but like, 
okay, what if I wanted to be a professor one day? It's like, wait a minute, you could theoretically still do, do that. Yeah, you could still do that. Yeah. So it is interesting to know there, there's definitely other options out there. And I think it applies to nearly any career. You have a set of skills and there are more applications than just the typical route you may think. Like even if you have, have like finance skills, like there's more than investment banking. <laughs> like yeah. you could go a lot of different routes with that. They still need that financial or that, that way of thinking to apply to other things. Um, so I think it's important that people understand that. Um, to the point of kind of learning and teaching and stuff, were there any books you would suggest to anyone throughout their career or even in finance or any ones that kind of have helped you? I know we're reading one for USC right now. Uh, I think it's called The Most Important Thing. I think you mentioned you read that one. Yeah, uh, that's actually, so I've read that like I think like twice in the last like four or five years. Um, in terms of quality investment books, it's up there as like number one or number two. In my opinion, um, there's a lot of things in that book that uh, run parallel to the way we manage money at Kinney Asset Management. So a lot of it just sort of made sense to me. It's pretty logical, um, you know, when you're going through the book of, you know, how he thinks about investing. And um, I believe Howard Marks is of Oak Tree, which has like a distressed debt. So he's less concerned about you know, a company's balance sheet and just wants to buy a cheap asset, you know, yeah. than what we were looking at at Kinney Asset Management. But a lot of the same principles are still able to be applied. Um, another book from an educational perspective on investing uh, is a book written by Joel Greenblatt called uh, You Could Be a Stock Market Genius, which is <laughs> the most ridiculous name for a book. And it yes. sounds, <laughs> sounds, sounds really, really corny. Um, but there's actually a lot of good material in there of, um, you know, how to go about gaining an edge in the stock market and, um, how to capitalize on inefficiencies that do exist in the public markets. Um, you know, I think public markets are more efficient than private markets, but I don't think that they're completely efficient. And this book provides, um... I guess just some ways to think about, um, you know, gaining an edge. And then from a, um, I guess just enjoyment or just reading for fun about finance, which sounds like an oxymoron, um, <laughs> is there's a book, um, When Genius Failed, uh, that goes through this, um, I believe it was an options hedge fund back in the Asian currency financial crisis, which was sometime in the 90s, I believe. Um, but it just kind of goes through of how these guys raised their fund. And, um, you know, I think they lacked a little bit of humility and, um, you know, didn't manage their risk as well as they could have. And, you know, it goes through the rise of, you know, how well they did and then the crash. Um, which I thought was interesting. And then a uh, book by Michael Lewis, The Big Short, where there's the movie um, that uh, that mimics, or doesn't mimic the book, but it's similar to the book. Um, but the book is probably a little bit more detailed, um, and I really enjoyed reading that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, last question we're going to ask here. What do you think makes for a successful career, you personally? Um, just whatever role that I'm in, um, you know, that I'm maximizing my own potential and all at the same time, 
leaving a positive impact on an organization and the people you worked with. Um, you know, goes back to just like wanting to teach and, you know, people to do well. Um, you know, I'm not just concerned about myself, um, you know, care about the well-being of others. And I feel like if I could maximize my own potential and leave a positive impact that um, I'd consider that to be a success. And then, um, yeah, I guess in conjunction with that, you know, at the same time being able to have a good work-life balance, um, one thing that I get a little nervous about with the career that um, I'm thinking about going forward is that I'm sure that the time demand is going to be quite significant, um, you know, and I don't want that to be at the expense of uh, family and friends um, and neglecting those relationships because, you know, I don't see much point in working your tail off and, you know, trying to make money and do all this stuff if you... Uh, don't have the relationships that go with it. Uh, there's only so much money in the world that can make you happy, and I think uh, happiness probably comes more through relationships, uh, things like that. Yeah, than just just the amount of money. And it's always it's always relative. It's always to a point, I guess. Yeah. Um, with that, but that's a good definition, man. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate the time. Um, if you guys do want to reach out to Andrew, I'll see if he's willing or not. He's a pretty private, private person for the most part, but you can always reach out, contact uh, me through the website, which by the way, it's just grind.com slash podcast. And then we'll find those questions if relevant uh, to him. But thanks for your time, Andrew. And guys, we will talk to you later. Thank you for listening. Again, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And in iTunes, search Just Go Grind and leave a rating review. Thanks. Have a good one.